And, uh, you know, this whole month, we like to, we, we, we take the whole month to celebrate, and we have a theme that we do pretty much every year. And as you know, the theme for this year is all is calm and all is bright, taken out of that wonderful song that we, that we know so well, Silent Night. And um, it just encompasses everything that, that we believe that Jesus coming to earth did for us. He brought calm and bright, which is peace and joy into the world. And we are celebrating that, and we are excited to celebrate it in the church. And we have a verse that we've been using each week this month as well that we kind of been catapulting off of every week and it is out of uh, it's out of Luke 2 it's the it's Luke's account of the birth of Jesus and you know when Jesus was born most of you know the story of Jesus being born but then it said that uh, there were there were shepherds out in the field nearby from where Jesus was born and there it says an angel came and appeared to these shepherds out of nowhere and it says the glory of the Lord shone around them around him and it says the shepherds were terrified you can imagine how terrifying that must be to be out there minding your own business and all of a sudden here's an angel of the Lord and the glory of God shining. And, but I love, love, love the angel's response. And this has been our verse for this month. It's out of Luke 2 and verse 10. It says, but the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah the Lord. What a wonderful announcement. This was the greatest baby announcement that's ever happened in the history of the world. You know, we're in the social media era where if you have a baby, it's typically going to be all over Facebook or Instagram or Snapchat or wherever your, your social media platform is. And it's wonderful. You know, we didn't have those when Joy and I were having our kids. And so to see it now is really great. Parents get to brag about their kid and they're so excited to have a child and we get to see the pictures and all that. And it's wonderful, but I don't know anybody that had an angel announcing their child. Amen? That tells me this is the most, uh, con- this was the most anticipated, the most celebrated, the most significant birth in the history of the world. And we get to partake in the joy that comes from the birth of Jesus. You know, this is not folklore. This is not allegory. This isn't just some tradition that we do. Christmas isn't just a tradition. The traditions that come with Christmas are wonderful, but this is not about a tradition. This is about the Savior of the world, God himself, coming to this earth in human form to save mankind. And that is something we can celebrate. That is something that we can be excited about. This wasn't him coming to make a, a cameo appearance. This wasn't him coming to spend time with the, the high and mighty people, the governors, the kings, the officials. This was about him coming to be with you and with me. The, the angel was very clear to say, today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. And that is for all of us. He came to be with us. There's something, it's, it's one thing to say that there's a God out in the cosmos that looks down over us. And, you know, maybe he cares about us. Maybe, you know, maybe he knows your name. Maybe he knows something about you and watches you. It's another thing for God, that same God, to come down to earth and get his hands dirty with his people. And to be part of his own creation to come and to be with us. And I want to tell you today that he wants to be your savior too. If he's not your savior, I can tell you it's not because he's holding out on you. He doesn't hold out on anybody. He came for each and every one of us today. He came to bring joy. The angel said that it will bring joy to the people, a great joy to the people. But the only people that get to partake in that joy, the only people that get to actually experience that joy and receive it in their heart are those that receive him and what he did for each one of us. 
You see, this was the beginning of the greatest story ever told. Christmas is the celebration of the beginning of the greatest story ever told. And if you're a follower of Jesus today, if you're here today and you're a Christian, you would say yes, because you know exactly what that means. You know that Jesus coming to this earth and living the life he lived and dying on a cross and rising from the dead and living and going ascending back to the Father and you allowing him in your life, you know that it's the greatest part of your story. But if you're not a follower of Jesus today, you may say, well, what's so great about it? Well, I'm glad you asked because I'm here to tell you. And, but to do that, I'm going to bring you all the way forward to 2020 to illustrate it. Because, you know, we all know 2020 has been a tough year. I don't think anybody has escaped the ramifications of this pandemic, right? For some of us, it's been an annoyance. Some maybe an inconvenience. Some of us just a frustration. But for some of us, it's been a lot more than that. Some of us have experienced pain through this pandemic. Financial pain. Some have had financial struggles because of this. Some have lost their jobs because of this. And some of us have even dealt with health issues because of this. And to top it off, some of us have actually had loved ones that we have lost because of what has happened in 2020. And if you're like me, I know there have been many times this year where I have held on to hope, hoping that something was going to help us see the light at the end of the tunnel, that there was going to be an end to this. You know, people have altered their lives and allowed people to tell us how we should live because we're so determined that we want to get to the end of this. We want to see hope. We want to see light at the end of the tunnel. And you know, for those of us that are followers of Jesus, even in the midst of all of this, we have hope. We have joy. We have peace at our disposal if we will receive it. Because we know that there is so much more than just what happens on this earth. That it's not just about what happens in my earthly body. Because, yes, we have earthly bodies that we live in, and that's really what we know right now. But we're also a spirit. And, you know, we know that our earthly bodies are going to die one day. There's nothing we can do to stop that. You can delay it for a while, but it's going to happen for each and every one of us. But our spirit, the Bible is very clear that our spirit's going to live forever. It's absolutely going to live forever. And where our spirit lives forever is determined by the life we live in this body today. There's only two places. You're either going to live with Jesus in heaven, or you're going to be separated from Jesus for eternity in hell. The Bible is very clear about that. And we have to live this life in such a way that we would be responding to him and what he's done for us. You see, fear has gripped the world this year because of what's happened. You, you, you can see, you can just see it everywhere. There's fear everywhere that has totally had its way in this world this year. In fact, a couple weeks ago when I was sharing, I shared about when they arrested Jesus, the day he got crucified, he said this was allowed because right now this is your hour where darkness reigns. How many of you know that this year has felt like darkness has been raining? But see, we, as followers of Jesus, we have a hope. We have a hope that the world can't take away because the world didn't give it to us. And so nothing in this world can take that from us. And I'm here to encourage you today that if, if you don't know what that hope looks like, I'm hoping by the time we're done today that you will. And you will receive it because it's not just for a select few. It's for each and every one of us that would call on the name of Jesus. And it all started with the birth of Jesus. You know, there was an epidemic that was far bigger and far more out of control at the time of Jesus' birth than any pandemic we're dealing with today. And this was the epidemic of sin. You see, sin came into the world. You have to go all the way back to the beginning of the book 
in Genesis. The first people, Adam and Eve, when they were first on the earth, there was no sin. They were living in the Garden of Eden. They were in paradise. They were communing with God. Everything was good. And they had an act, one single act of disobedience. They ate from a tree that they were not supposed to eat from. And what that did was it opened the floodgates that sin came into the world. And the Bible tells us that ever since then, that we have all been born into sin. We are all fallen people now. Because sin has come into the world, so we don't even have a chance. In fact, in Romans 3, Paul, the Apostle Paul's letter to Rome, he says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Every single one of us has sinned. So if you're here today and you're not a Christian, and you think Christians and church people are just a bunch of goody-goodies, and that we just have it all figured out, wow, are you missing it? Because we, are, we have all sinned. We are all fallen without the mercy and the grace of God in our life. But you know, the hopelessness that, happens, that has happened this year that you've seen in many people, it pales in comparison to the hopelessness of the fallen sinful person, of, of who we are without God in our lives. In fact, the comparison isn't even fair. It's like comparing a hangnail to a massive heart attack. You can't do it. Because as bad as things have been this year for so many people, and it has been rough, it pales in comparison to what sin does to our spirit. What a pandemic can do to our body and do to our lives here pales in comparison to what sin can do in our life. Because see, here's the deal. God's standard of living for us, his standard for each and every one of us, didn't change because sin came into the world. We are still expected to be holy as he is holy, the Bible says. So his standards didn't lower. He didn't lower his standards because we made a mistake and welcomed sin into the world. So the expectation is still there, which means it's an insurmountable expectation. We can't possibly measure up to God's expectation for us. It's as if someone brought a bench, a workout bench up here with a barbell on it with about 600 pounds and forced me to lay down under it and try to press it. I can tell you that would not go well. Maybe some of you here could press 600 pounds. I could not. I couldn't even squat 600 pounds, let alone press it. What would happen is I would literally be crushed under that expectation because I can't do it. Because it's impossible for me to do. And that's what it's like for you and me when it comes to trying to live up to God's expectations in our own life. We cannot possibly match up to his expectation. But here's the beauty. You know, the greatest stories come out of the greatest times of desperation. Heroes come out of the greatest times of need. In fact, this year we've seen lots and lots of heroic stories of people who have risen up and gone above and beyond during this pandemic and helped people, healthcare workers, all kinds of stories that you'll hear. If you, if you want to find them, they're everywhere to see the stories of people that have been heroes in the midst of this. And it's a beautiful thing. I often think of firemen. You know, they're, to me, they're heroes because when a fire happens, everybody else is running away from it. Firemen are running to it. And when I think of you in 9-11, and I'm, I'll never forget those pictures of people in New York City just scrambling down the street, sprinting as hard as they can go away from their twin towers, and there's fire trucks passing them going towards it. And there's pictures of firefighters in the stairwell going up to fight that fire. They run to the problem, and they're heroes for it. Well, this was a hero, too, when Jesus was born. In fact, you know, you think of if God's going to come to earth, you would think, I would think, that if God's going to come to earth, he's going to do it in a pretty incredible way. Like there's, there's going to be a boom in the sky that's, you're, you better pray you got noise-canceling headphones because it's going to rock your eardrums. You know, he's going to, it's going to be this huge deal that everybody's going to know, and there's going to be no doubt that the God of the universe is here. But you know what? That's not how he came. 
You know, you would think that God himself would be born not in a castle, but the castle. Whatever the best castle was in the world, that's where he's going to be born. And they're going to clear it out so there's room for the king to be born. It's not what he did. The Bible tells us he was born in a horse stable. He was actually placed in a manger, which is a feeding trough. You know, we like to dress it up when we do the plays and the cute nativity scenes and all that, but it was very primitive the way he came. You would think that the king of the world, the king of kings, the lord of lords, that when he was born, they would put a, a robe on him and a crown on his head and a scepter in his hand and be taking pictures of him, you know, as the king. It's not what happened. It says he was wrapped in swaddling clothes. He was basically wrapped in rags because they didn't even have clothes or blanket to put around him. And not only that, you would think when, the, when God himself was going to come to earth, that if an angel's going to come and pronounce him, he's going to do it to the biggest of the big. The leaders of the leaders, the most powerful people in all the world are, are the ones that are going to get the announcement from the angel. It's not what happened. It says the angel came and was announcing this to some shepherds, some lowly shepherds out in the field. You know, shepherding was considered a very low-level position. In fact, it's significant that they were out in a field because typically these towns didn't even allow shepherds to have their sheep near the town. They forced them out of the town because they were an embarrassment. Yet the angel, that's where he came and pronounced the birth of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And you know what? People have been asking the question for centuries ever since then. Why did he do it that way? Why didn't he do it in such a way that there would be no doubt that this is God? That there would be no doubt that this is the person that he says he is, so that you know, it would have changed everything, maybe. Well, I think the reason that he didn't do it is pretty clear. In fact, I think we see it even when it was time for, for um, Samuel to anoint the second king of Israel. You know, Saul was the first king, and he had fallen. He'd gotten too big for his own britches, and it was time to bring a new king in. And God sent Samuel, the, the priest, to go anoint the next king. And he went to the house of Jesse, and he said, Don't look at, at the, all these brothers that are big and burly, and they're warriors. He told him to anoint this little shepherd boy, teenager kid, named David. But he tells us why he told him to do that. It's in 1 Samuel 16, verse 7. It says, The Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Let me tell you something, church. That verse tells us so, it tells us everything we need to know about our God. The reason he came in humble circumstances, the reason he came in such a way that there's so many people that don't even believe he is who he says he is, is because he didn't want forced allegiance to him. If he'd have been born in the castle and been crowned the king, people would have been forced to serve him. People would have been forced to show their allegiance and obey everything he said or risk consequences. God doesn't want that. God looks at the heart. He wanted people to choose him. He wanted people to be able to say, yes, yes, I believe it. Because you know what? When we open our heart to him, we do know who he is. We see it because there's a place in every one of our hearts that wants to serve God, that wants to worship God. And when we open ourselves up to that, God looks at our heart. When we open ourselves up, he is pleased and our hearts are drawn to him. And we can stand here and say, like I can today, that I know that I know that I know that this Jesus that was born 2,000 years ago is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords and the Savior of the world. And he's everything to me. That's why he came the way he did. Now, you know, if you're a parent and you've had a child, you know, when you have a baby, having a baby turns your world or turns your life upside down, doesn't it? It's a good thing, but it Turned your life upside down. Well, when this baby was born, he actually turned the whole world upside down. You know, this was the only time in the history of the world that a, the birth of a baby brought peace and joy and hope 
into the earth that could not be taken away by anything. It's the only time it's ever happened. And it's the only time that it ever will happen. And you may think, well, how does the birth of a baby bring all of that? Because to say that can be a little bit confusing if you're, if you're not accustomed to the lingo that comes from being in church or from reading your Bible. Because he didn't, by just being born, bring a, a blanket of peace and hope and joy into the world. That's not how it happened at all. In fact, in some ways, the birth of Jesus caused some people's lives to be miserable. The religious folk of the day were not happy. They were actually miserable by his birth. They, were, they worked against him from day one. You know, the king, Herod, at the time, his life was not made joyful and peaceful by the birth of Jesus. In fact, he was so upset because there were people coming and trying to find Jesus because they said they wanted to worship him. So King Herod got so mad, he decided he was going to have all the babies born in Bethlehem that were two years and under, he's going to have them killed, trying to get rid of and extinguish Jesus. Obviously, it didn't work, but the parents of those boys that were born around the same time as Jesus... They were grieving because of people's response to Jesus' birth. So his, his literal birth didn't just automatically bring peace and joy and hope into the world for everybody, but it came to those that will trust him. It came to those that were willing to put their faith and their hope in him. Because you see, at the end of the day, there are only two types of people in the world, church. There's two types of people in the world. When it comes to Christmas especially, there are those that the birth of Jesus means everything, and there are those that the birth of Jesus means nothing. There is no middle ground. There's no middle ground. The tradition of Christmas, if, if it's just a tradition, but it's without the knowledge and the understanding and the submission to the birth of Jesus and what he means, then the tradition of Christmas is actually hollow. And I'm not minimizing the fact that it's great to get together with family and exchange gifts and have fun and eat a lot of food, too much food, and all those things. That's, it's fun. It's good. But the meaning, the, the impact of our life is hollow. And you know it if that's you because you know that on December 26, when it's all over, it feels kind of empty. And there's, a, there's a, almost a, a, a fatigue that can settle in after Christmas if you're not approaching Christmas from the aspect of Jesus and his birth meaning everything to you. There, there is no fence riding. Jesus was very clear about people that will ride the fence. He says, I wish you were either hot or cold. He doesn't, he doesn't give us a place. He doesn't give us an opportunity to ride the fence and say that it's okay. It either needs to mean everything to us or it means nothing to us. And you know, the word Jesus actually means God saves. When they named him Jesus, it was because it meant God saves. And you may think, well, it saves from what? Because if you don't know, then you don't know. That's really profound, isn't it? If you don't know, you don't know. You may be thinking that, but I can tell you that, you know, one of the biggest blessings of living in a nation like we live in, that is so blessed and so prosperous and, and so many great things about it, one of the biggest blessings is that, you know, if you work hard, and if you keep your nose clean and you, you follow the laws and you uh, and you work as hard as you can and you, you know, give yourself to what you're doing, you can be successful. You can succeed in life. There's different levels of success, but, you know, for the most part, most of us will never have to worry about where our next meal's coming from. We'll never have to worry if we're going to have enough clothes to wear to stay warm in the winter. And frankly, here you don't have to worry about it because winter only lasts about 10 minutes, all right? But we don't have to worry about a lot of those things, and we can actually be independent. We can trust in ourselves 
in a nation like the United States because of how blessed we are. And as big of a blessing as that can be, it can also be a big hindrance in our life. Because even though in the natural, in our physical bodies, it's okay to want to be independent, to not have to be a burden to other people or to our government or whatever, and to really want to succeed, that's okay. But when that translates and that crosses over into our spiritual life, that's where we get into trouble. Because there's no place, according to God's word and according to the character of God, there's no place for independence when it comes to our relationship with him. There's no place for us to say, okay, God, you do your thing, I'm going to do mine, and at the end, we'll work it out. He requires, he, he tells us that he wants our full affection. And if we really want the joy that comes from his birth, it comes from having a full affection for him. Because again, I can't say this enough, we are spiritual beings. We are spiritual beings And as much as our flesh can prosper in a place like the United States, it has nothing to do with our spirit. Our spirit needs to be completely surrendered to God. And see, some of us, you may think that you're a good person, and you may think that you don't need to be saved. And in fact, the concept or the thought that you would need to be saved may be even offensive to some. Well, I I didn't come here to offend you at all today, but I did come to tell you that you're not good enough. You're not good enough. And and before you take that too far and thinking that I'm accusing you of something, I'm telling you none of us are good enough. There is not one of us good. the, The prophet Jeremiah says that the heart, the human heart, all of our hearts are deceitfully wicked above all else, of which there is no cure. That's where all of us are at. And so if you think that, well, I'm, I'm good, I'm a good person, the question then would be, well, what's your standard of good? If your standard of good is that you're just a decent human being and you help people and you, you try to be nice and you're a law-abiding citizen, you pay your taxes and you're a good person, then yes, if that's your standard. But God doesn't use the same standard that we use. God doesn't use the same measuring pole that we use. He has a standard that we absolutely cannot live up to. And frankly, if we start to think that, our, that if we compare our best deeds compared to the holiness and the goodness of God, it doesn't measure up. In fact, the prophet Isaiah, hundreds of years before Jesus was born, he prophesied many times about Jesus being born, but he also talked about, he was talking to the children of Israel, God spoke through him to be his mouthpiece to the children of Israel. And look what he said about our good deeds. In Isaiah 64, he says, all of us, I don't think anybody's excluded in all of us, have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf, and like the wind, our sins sweep us away. So he's saying there, all our good deeds we can compile and build up. If we take every one of them, a a lifetime of good deeds, and we lay them at Jesus' feet, it's not enough. It's not enough. In fact, Isaiah says it says filthy rags. That term filthy rags is such a grotesque term, you can't even talk about it in mixed company. Saying God doesn't see those as anything when you compare it to how much greater he is than us. There is absolutely no comparison. So what that means today is that if you're, if you're helping the needy, especially in this time of year, you're doing something, you're sacrificing to help the needy, that's good, it's not good enough. If you're befriending that person that nobody wants to be friends with, that's good. That's not good enough. If you're going to church and participating in your church, that's good, but it's not good enough. Even at Christmas. We're never, ever, ever going to be good enough to get God's attention. And you know, that can sound hopeless, right? 
but actually it can be the most freeing thing you'll ever hear. I'm going to tell you something that's going to set some of you free today because some of you, maybe you've even been Christians for a long time, and you get stuck in that rut of feeling like you've got to do something to earn God's love. There's nothing we can do to earn it. There's absolutely nothing we can do to earn it. We can't get salvation on our own. In fact, the disciples came to Jesus and said, what is it? it's impossible for man to be saved. And Jesus responded to them in Matthew 19. He says, yeah, with man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. You see, God knows that we can never be good enough. He knew it from the moment Adam and Eve brought sin into the world, it was over. The good was over. He was, we were never going to be good enough. So, Because what happens is, is that our sin has produced a debt in our life that we cannot overcome. I love talking about sin as a debt. The Bible talks about it too because everybody understands debt, right? Well, I should say every adult understands debt. Some of you youth don't understand it. You think your parents just have an endless amount of money. You just keep coming back for money. Not true. Not true. And every parent said, amen. amen. Stop coming back to us for money. But we understand debt, right? Because we all have some at some point, some more than others. There's different levels. But you know, a lot of us have been to that place where we've had so much debt and we can't pay it. The credit card, you don't get the credit card paid off and that 19.95 interest rate kicks in. Next thing you know, it's compiling daily. And then the interest is, the interest is compounding and it gets higher and higher. And you, whatever you pay towards, it seems like it's not doing anything. That's the debt of sin in our life. There's nothing we can do. It's worse than any credit card interest rate you could ever have. That's how great the sin is in our life. So God knew that he was going to have to come and pay that debt for us. And that's exactly what he did. And that is why Jesus came to this earth. Because God cannot compromise who he was. That debt had to be paid, but no human was ever going to be able to pay it. So God said, I'm going to do it myself. And he came and he paid the price for all of our debt. And what I love about it so much, church, is that God didn't wait until we were good enough. He didn't wait until we'd compiled up enough good deeds to where he could say, okay, now they've done enough good, now let's go ahead and cancel out that debt. In fact, the Apostle Paul said in Romans 5, he said, God demonstrated his own love for us in this, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You don't have to be good enough, church. You don't have to be good enough. You just have to know what he did for you, and you have to receive it into your life and live your life for him. And even then, it's not about being perfect. About then, it's not about having everything figured out. It's just about where your motives are, what your purpose is in life. Your purpose goes from trying to just get through life and get to Friday so I can enjoy my weekend to actually living for something bigger than yourself, which is to live for Jesus. And he meets us in that place. And you know, you might think, why does he do it that way? Why didn't he just, you know, he's God. He could have been up in heaven and said, you know what? Forget it. We're just gonna wipe sin out again. We're gonna start over. Because that's not who God was. That's not who he is. He's not about just redoing things. He wanted to, to put us in a win-win situation, which is exactly what he did. In Ephesians 2, this is Paul's letter to the Ephesian church. He says, for it is by grace you have been saved. Through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. We give gifts at Christmas time, this is the greatest gift ever given. It is the gift of grace that God gives to us because of what Jesus did for us. And he did it that way so that no one can boast. Because let me tell you something God hates. God loves you, but he hates pride. And he hates when we try to do things ourselves because he knows we can't do it. 
So he says, I'm going to give you a gift, and all he, does, all he says is just accept it. So if you know Christians or church folk that are bragging about them being Christians and being good, they're missing it. Because we, the only thing we can boast in is Jesus. Paul said that, if I'm going to boast, I'm going to boast in Christ and who he is and what he's done for me. So that brings us to what is my role? What is my role in all of this, in salvation and living for him? Because God did his part. Jesus is never, ever going to have to die again for the sins of the world. It's been done. It's over. Your sins have been accounted for. They have been canceled out if you will respond to him. That's our role, is responding to him. Today could be the beginning of your great story, your great journey in this walk with Jesus. John 3.16, the most famous verse in all the Bible. The most unchurched person knows John 3.16. You see it plastered at football games all over the place. It's most popular because it's the most beautiful and it's very succinct in the heart of God. It says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. It's a beautiful verse. But you know what? James, the apostle James, comes a little later on in the New Testament in his book, and he throws a little monkey wrench in it, throws us into a little bit of chaos, because he says in the second chapter of James, he says, oh, you believe that there's one God? Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. So it's not just enough to believe in Jesus, okay? But if you study even John 3.16 and where it says to believe in him will not perish, that believe is not just about a, a casual saying, yeah, sure, I believe it. Yeah, Jesus was born in a manger, lived, died on a cross, rose again. Yeah, sure, I believe that. Why not? It's not a casual belief. This belief is actually about trusting in him. It's about leaning on him, and it's about clinging to him. That's what this belief means. So if you want to you get a little more down and dirty with this verse, it says... For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever trusts in him, leans on him, and clings to him with total dependence will not perish but have everlasting life. That is the heart of God for us. That is how we respond to what God has done for us. And when we do that, something miraculous happens. His spirit dwells in us. The Bible tells us that the Holy Spirit lives in us. When we give our lives to him, he doesn't just say, okay, good, now you've accepted what I've done for you, now I want you to go and live perfect. I want you to go live by this list of rules. He doesn't do that at all. He says there is a standard for living that we see according to his word, but he says, I'm going to give you my spirit to help you do it. I'm going to give you my spirit to help you walk out this life so you're not doing it alone anymore. It doesn't mean you'll be perfect, but it means that you will have power in you that you wouldn't have had otherwise. So in conclusion, I'll give you a couple truths just to remember this Christmas. And the first one is that God is for you. God is for you you. He is not against you. No matter what you may feel, maybe what you've been told, what you've experienced in church or from some Christian, God is for you. He is for each and every one of us. In fact, he's not just for the preacher. He's not just for those that have it figured out. He's not for the, the politicians. He's not just for the, the leaders, the, the people that seem to be smarter than everybody else. He's not just for those that, that just feel like they never sin anymore. He is for the down and out as much as he is for the up and in. In fact, you could look at the word of God and, and make the argument that he's more for the down and out than he is for the up and in. Jesus gives us the parable in Luke 15. He says, so there's a shepherd that's got 100 sheep in his pen, and one of those sheep gets out. It says he will immediately leave the 99 that are still there and go find the one. 
He wants that lost sheep. He wants the lost people. Amen. Praise God. He wants the down and out. That's what he came for, for all of us. He is for you. He does not reject us. You know, I know some of us have dealt with rejection many times over in our life. Almost all of us have, rege- have dealt with it in some way or another. And I, could, I know that some of us have responded to God's love for us out of that rejection and kind of rejected that because we've been hurt or afraid to really give ourselves to him. But I can tell you today that God does not reject you. He does not reject. Jesus says, I will go with you. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I will go with you to the ends of the world. That's who he is. Secondly, God is with you. We already mentioned that the name Emmanuel means God with us. This is what separates Christianity from all the other faiths. Because you know what? Christianity is not a religion. It's a relationship. It's a relationship that you get to have with the creator of the universe. He is with you. He wants to be with you, and he did everything that needed to be done to make the way that he could be with you. If you will receive what he has done. In Joshua 1.9, God told Joshua, he said, Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. Now, you know, this is Old Testament, Joshua. And God was with the Israelites. And he was, he was in relationship with a select few people like Abraham and Moses and Noah and the prophets. Not everybody could be in relationship with God. Those days are over. Because of what Jesus did, we all get to be in that relationship with him. There's nothing keeping us from it. He is not holding out on you. And he never, ever will. And third, God is in you. Now this is strictly for those that have given themselves to Jesus and have received his work in our life. When, and the Bible says when we do that, his spirit comes and lives with us. He is in us. The Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 3, he said, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? This was written to Christians. He's saying God's spirit is in you. You know, the temple before Jesus came, the temple was the place where the presence of God dwelt. It dwelt in that temple. That was the place for the presence of God. Now Paul is telling us, now you are the temple. So God's presence dwells in you. It's beautiful. It's such a wonderful promise from the word of God. This gives us the power we need to live this life. And again, it doesn't mean we have it all figured out. We're all perfect. But he gives us, he gives us that conviction. You know, when we do mess up, that we, we know we did something and we repent and we live a lifestyle of just always coming to Jesus and giving ourselves to him. You know, the salvation experience of getting saved is an experience we have that happens in a moment, but that's just the very beginning. We live that life then of being saved. And the Bible says today is the day of your salvation, that we work out our salvation with fear and trembling, that when we get saved, it's, it's, a, it's a process and it's a lifestyle of living for him. Doesn't mean we're going to have it all figured out right away, but we give ourselves to him completely. So the question today is, is he worth it to you? Is it worth it? Is it worth it to make Christmas more than a tradition, but to make it about his birth and his life and his death and his resurrection and what that means in your life? Would you stand with me as I, as I close us out today? And I'm going to ask you not to leave yet. You don't have to. We're going to pray. We're actually going to sing one more song together too, just in worship today. But I want to I want to share one more verse with you. It's out of Revelation 3:20. These are the words of Jesus. He says, "Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. 
If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. Jesus did what he, has, what he had to do by coming and living on this earth for 33 years. And that joy, that joy unspeakable, that peace, the hope that we can have in our life is all dependent on whether or not we're gonna open that door. See, see, God's a gentleman. He doesn't burst through the door like the Kool-Aid man. He stands there and patiently knocks. We can live our whole life with him knocking and never open that door, and he's never gonna force it open. He stands there and he waits, and he says, if you'll open the door, I will come in. That's proof that he doesn't reject us. There's nobody that's ever opened the door where Jesus has said, oh, no, 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 no. Not you. Mm -mm. Maybe your brother, but not you. Never. He says, I will come in and I will dine with you. That's symbolic of him coming to be with you, that you will be in his presence. Now, opening the door can mean many things to many of us. If you've never opened the door to Jesus in your life, then it means salvation. It means opening the door and letting him come in and opening up your life to him and saying, God, I know that I'm a sinner in need of a savior because we all are. If you've never done that, I beg you today, don't leave without giving your heart to him because we're not guaranteed tomorrow. We're not guaranteed anything. And we get, we get one life, church, to figure this out. But we know that if we will give our heart to him and we say, God, forgive me for my sins, I give my life to you. We know that in that moment, you are saved. You're, in that moment, God takes his pen and he writes your name in his book. And it's never erased out of there. And you will be his child. You will be in his sheep pen. You will be one of the 99. But for some of you, you may have been saved for a long time. But you know there's still doors in your heart that you're not opening to them. I want to encourage you today to open that door. No one has ever opened the door to Jesus in any area of their heart where they've regretted it. No one. Because he comes in. Now, I'm not saying when he comes into those areas we don't want him in that it may not even hurt for a minute. You know, many preachers have given the analogy of a surgery, and that's what it can be like sometimes when we let Jesus come into these areas of our life we haven't let him in before because we're afraid of what we're going to have to give up if we allow him to come in. But I've said it before and I'll say it again. There's nothing we'll ever leave behind that's better than having Jesus. Nothing. He is so much more than any of those things. But you don't get to experience that until you actually do it. You don't get to see it first and then jump in. You gotta, you gotta jump in. In a lot of ways, serving Jesus is a blind leap of faith. But if I'm gonna take a blind leap, I'm gonna do it for him. I'm gonna trust him. So I wanna encourage you today to open the door to him. And we're actually, I'm gonna pray for all of us and then we're going to sing just a little bit more. But as we dismiss then, we're going to have some, a couple prayer leaders just up here at the very ends of the stage. We haven't been doing altar calls because of social distancing, and we want to be sensitive to that. But we just feel like today, of all Sundays, we just don't want you to not have an opportunity if you want to pray. If you want to, if you want to give your heart to Jesus for the first time today, or if you just want someone to pray with you that there's an area of your heart you haven't opened the door, and you want them to just believe with you, whatever it is, we want you to be able to come up. We'll have masks on and hand sanitizer. We ask you to still try to socially distance as best you can, but if you want to pray, we're going to do that. We'll do it as we dismiss. We're not here to embarrass anybody. We're not here to call anybody out, but we want to give you a chance to respond too. So I'm going to pray for all of us. Would you just respond as we pray?
Father, we love you today. We thank you that your word is true. We thank you that your birth that we celebrate this month is so much more than a tradition. It is not folklore. It is not allegory. It is real, and it is everything. And God, I pray for those of us in this room that it is not everything, that it would become everything today. Father, that no one would leave this place today without you touching their heart. Lord, we know that only you can touch our hearts. We can, we can come with the most eloquent of words that we could possibly muster, but it's got to be your spirit that does your work in our hearts. So would you do your work in our hearts even now? Would you help us to open that door and let you in into whatever area that is? Lord, we know that you are for us. We know that you are for us. We know that you accept us, that you do not reject us. We know that you are with us. We know that you want to dwell inside of us. We know that, that as John said, the Apostle John, that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That is you. And so we thank you today, God, that you're with us. We open our hearts to you today. Lord, would you come in and dwell in us? Let us be your temple. Let us live lives worthy of the calling that you've put on each and every one of us to live for you, God. And we'll give you all the glory, all the honor, all the praise. You're the only one that deserves it, Jesus. We love you. And all God's people said, amen.